there's still enough generator power left to charge a few batteries, charge whatever's necessary to do a video episode, and uh, the generator cut out earlier than expected. I'm coming home at midnight uh, wanting to express a range of emotions and perhaps thoughts as well from a good 9-10 hours between Martyr's Square and Jemaisi. Now, there's no generator power. I have just enough laptop battery to record an audio episode with a portable microphone that has just enough battery as well. So, this is the first audio-only episode I've done in years. And I think that's fine. I actually crave this format more and more. And I think it's okay from time to time to go back to something that's purely audio. And the reason I want to reflect at midnight is because, first, I did not think I would release an episode. It's just a feeling that emerged in the last maybe 30 minutes as I walked home. Um, The second is that uh, two episodes that were supposed to happen the last two weeks were canceled. So here I am, alone, uh, with my cat eating cat food in the background. If you hear munching on dry cat food, that uh, that is what's happening. I spent a good six hours today with Mazen al-Hassan, Wissam al-Hassan's elder son. Wissam al-Hassan, a former brigadier general, assassinated October 19, 2012, so 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was in Ashrafi. I used to live on the hill behind, facing Adli, uh, very, very close to where Wissam al-Hassan was assassinated in a car bombing in the middle of Ashrafi. And I was actually on the news on BBC, talking about that assassination. I mean, very close to my apartment, the bed shook, the windows reverberated, and I mean, everyone knows what an assassination in this city feels like. Those car bombings that continued endlessly from 2004, the attempted ones and successful ones, all the way to my father's in late 2013. But in October 2012, I tried putting in perspective what was happening to an international audience. And I remember being able to look into uh, the internal security, the ISF courtyard, uh, maybe it was the day after or two days later, uh, my memory is bad, but it was within a few days that they were holding a ceremony there and I could see Wissam al-Hassan's family from my window. Sort of peering in, I could look in to what was happening at that courtyard. And I got to know the family. Um, They were much younger. The kids were much younger back then. And I watched them grow up, albeit at a distance. We've only met a few times. One of those occasions I met the family at the Dariq, 
in Martyrs Square, where both my father and Wissam al-Hassan are buried, side by side. And these are all what we, what used to be temporary, makeshift uh, tombs in a cemetery that was meant to be temporary, which is now permanent. And of course, a cemetery that shouldn't even be there. These are assassinated individuals following Rafiq Hariri, who's buried, of course, next to them. And it happens that they're buried side by side. And there was an evening years back, I was standing alone in Martyr Square late at night, where suddenly Wissam al-Hassan's family was standing right next to me. They happened to be there at the same time. I had two episodes with Mazen al-Hassan in the last three, four years, talking about impunity, but also talking about October 17, and what that protest movement meant to him, and what it meant to me. And we're, there's an at least 14 years difference in age. But at the end of the day, we're the same generation. We're the post-war generation. And I think both of us, myself now 41, Mezin 27, both of us today, thinking back to those conversations, standing side by side in Martyrs Square, I think no, nothing had to be said or spoken that were deeply, deeply, were left with a permanent wound and a political void. There was a ceremony, a solemn one. Um, the ISF, the marching band, and something very brief, but but just right. A little tribute at Martyrs Square today, and I insisted that Mazin and his friend uh, join me for coffee afterwards. And we walked from the cemetery to my car straight to Jemmezi. And, I mean, a few minutes later, we're sitting at a new restaurant cafe called Salata, which is right across the street from the National Block's headquarters. And I'm facing National Block, Mazin and his friend are facing the cafe. We're sitting outside. And while I'm sitting outside talking to Mazin about his career, about his dreams, about his reluctance to be in politics, at least in this stage of his life, I'm watching many friends of mine going in and out of the National Bloc, friends that are attending an event tonight. And a lot of them... I mean, I've either met them through the podcast or I've met them on the streets. I mean, I've gotten to know them well. We're talking as they walk by and saying hello and talking quickly about current politics. And I mean very current, as in the last maybe 24 hours of the change block and the sort of the differences of opinion that have surfaced. And perhaps the end of that block as we understood it. Regardless, we're talking. And there's a, uh, there's a feeling, and I think it's one of defeat, that people are still going about their routine, but the routine is not pointing necessarily to a place of, of improvement, at least right now. 
Now you can extrapolate many things from that and talk about many things that are going on. I mean, whether it's Tarebitar's permanent suspension, whether it's Babda's largely indecision, at least when it comes to coalition building and trying to find consensus in a name, hasn't happened. Or if it has happened, it's happened for the wrong reasons and from the wrong side. Uh, it could be just downward spiral of everything that hasn't stopped. And the lira crossing 40,000. Uh, an endless cycle of despair. I mean, that's just really a brief introduction to how bad things are always. And you feel it that with the 13 not really shining the way many wanted them to shine, I know there's something, there's something wrong in the air. Yet, people are walking into the national block, getting ready for an event. And I, I'm talking to Mezen about where he wants to move things, how he wants to move things forward. And the first thing that came to his mind is justice. And that's a word that we use all the time. It's a word I use. We use impunity. We talk about political violence. We talk about the need to end all forms of political violence. We always talk about what Hezbollah means today for Lebanon and the region. We're talking endlessly. But I asked him, I challenged him. It's like, what exactly does justice mean? And he saw his role solely in that world, which is making sure that these type of events never happen again. And that's a form of closure. And him wanting to be a part of it, any initiative that ends this type of violence. This is not a story of revenge or vengeance. It's one of fairness and making sure that the mechanisms are in place, which really means at the end of the day, finding a way out for Hezbollah's military infrastructure. I share common cause. And we imagined a situation where maybe one day both of us play that kind of role in a more structured, more serious way. But it's not going to happen now. That maybe will happen later. And he may it may happen for him before it happens to me. I mean, this could be in a later stage of life. But regardless, that's why this man is in this country. And that's why this man is doing his current work. And this is why he's reluctant right now to be a, at least a visible face or a, vi a more known name in politics. He's sort of, he's growing up and he's evolving. And I think he's doing things the right way. But there's a sadness there. And it's a permanent sadness. And this is 10 years after this man lost his father. And there's no escaping from that moment. Now, I'm not going to get into my own story because I've done that plenty. I'll just say that the fact that they're buried side by side and the fact that we're, we were sitting side by side talking about the same cause together in slightly different ways but coming to the same conclusion that this has to end before Lebanon can turn the page. Um, it's, uh, it's emotional in a very difficult way. Time passed and we talked about many other things as well. And we found humor in ways that maybe we shouldn't have. We were being a bit dark in our humor at times. Ways that people should when they're trying to let go of some stress and, and relieve some pain. 
But there came a point where they had to leave. I mean, they were going back up north. They don't they don't live in Beirut. And I drove them to their car, back to Martyrs Square. I drove them right to their car. They were buried right next to the Darih. And I just sort of parked right adjacent to the statue, looking at the tomb, and uh, not wanting to end the night this way. There was an ongoing event, which I already mentioned, at the National Block, and I thought, why not? Come late and see what's going on. And I knew that this was regarding San Joseph student elections, secular club, or Talib, or the independents, whatever it is right now, uh, running for student elections. Now, this is not something that I'm intimately, I, I can't handle an episode well regarding this topic. At least the terrain is a bit difficult for me. Because student politics, I think someone with a cl- someone within proximity to university politics should be the one to at least help navigate. And I was going to do an episode, actually yesterday, one of the two canceled episodes, with Verena Lamil. Uh, we couldn't really agree on how to do it because she didn't want to be in it. And that's fair. She wanted to give all the attention to the president of the secular club at San Joseph and somebody running, a st- somebody uh, campaigning in, uh, in uh, student politics. I insisted that she sit next to me, at least be sort of, uh, I don't know, a sounding board when I needed one or maybe somebody that could offer some reflection because she was in university just a few years ago. She was obviously really instrumental in the secular club at San Joseph. But regardless, she didn't want to be, and that's fine. Um, I thought Kitli today did a great job with Rawet Taha. In the last stretch that I saw, I thought they were doing just fine. And Rawet Taha is the natural fit for that conversation. Young, dynamic, and uh, understands student politics better than me, and I'm, I'm glad they did it. Uh, and I think uh, I think they did quite well today. But um, as everyone was leaving... Um, I sort of I said hello to many familiar faces and people I haven't seen in a long time. Mia Hatwe, haven't seen her for years. Uh, Verena, I saw her there. I've seen her just a few months ago. But there were others. I mean, I sat with Gestel Simhan, uh, Iman Tabara for hour for maybe a full hour and a half or so, even longer, after the event ended. And uh, even Michelle Halu joined us and sat down with us for at least 30 minutes, maybe even more. And we were talking about serious issues. I mean, whether it's finance, whether it's national politics, whether it's the 13 and where things are moving, whether it's the IMF deal, whether it's the secrecy laws, whatever, how to, I mean, the haircut things that we always talk about, we were talking about, and we were sort of light debate back and forth on on several topics. Anyway, that's not even the, the core uh, thing here. It's more that we were talking in a very, very difficult climate of very, very difficult political maneuvering and a very difficult stretch and really trying to be open-minded and being supportive for the 13 that are trying to find their way. And I don't know, 
It's just the uh, the emptiness continued. And this is not the same story. It's not like Mazen al-Hassan's permanent scar and the National Bloc and Friends' current path. It's not the same thing. It's not like there is. there are many differences here between the two. But, but at the same time, the feeling of there, there being a void and a serious hole in the discussion. I think, if I could best translate that, it's a huge piece of the puzzle that's been dislodged, and not by, not by choice, not by resignation. And I'm not going to go all the way here and say something that sounds foolish, naive, or the knee-jerk sectarian response, which is there's something wrong with the Sunni leadership today of Lebanon. Not that. Not that. Whether Saad Hariri stays in Abu Dhabi forever, whether someone else fills his shoes years from now, whether a new name emerges later, whether old names fill in different stages of, of our immediate future. I'm not going to go there. What I will just say is that I think the hole that we're all fa- that we're all f- maybe feeling in different ways is that the state's inward collapse and the gaping hole that emerged the the hole cannot be filled just by bringing new MPs to parliament or for that matter just by blaming uh thugs in power or panderers in power that claim to be opposition or blaming endlessly and being perhaps absolutist at times or being compromising at times it doesn't really matter i think our our politics the way we deliver it in lebanon um is being all thrown into the same hole now that hole is so deep today and it's almost like a free-falling hole where you can throw everything you want into there. And you can throw in words too. And I will go here. I'll say something that's quite uh, blunt. You can throw words like justice into that hole. You can throw words that are good. You can throw reform into that hole. You can throw fairness into that hole. And you can throw... You can throw everything into that hole social causes into that hole everything everything it's a giant giant black hole and in that hole also is somebody like Saad Hariri he's not he's not the most important person when it comes to uh, where we are right now but that hole includes I think sectarian insecurity and it's a rude, ugly way of describing things, but that is the biggest consequence, if you will, or if you want to say victory, from October 17. That one figure was kicked out. That Saad Hariri. Throw him in that hole too. But you throw everything in that hole. And I sense that we could keep talking about the same thing 
we can keep fighting for the same thing and we can go all the way for the rest of our lives demanding the same things but I don't know if they go anywhere they may all get stuck in that hole forever and hence perhaps it's my way of trying to understand why things remain paralyzed this way when I was at the end after this whole night uh, after talking about many things with very decent minds, I respect these people. I really respect Iman Tabara, Jistel Siman. I respect Michel Halou. I like these people and I want them to succeed and I want them to pursue politics on their terms. I think they're bright, they're competent, and they're decent. Um, but I don't know if they can get where they want. And I, I simply I went in my car and I drove back to Martyrs Square. And I stood next to the new Saura sign that has replaced the old one. It's a smaller one. Um, it looks like it was, maybe the font is not as elegant. It kind of looks cheaper than the earlier fist. Whatever, it's a bad replica of the original Saura fist. But I stood there and I realized that, yeah, I mean, yesterday was the third year anniversary of October 17. Um... Today is the 10-year anniversary, or whatever, marker, of an intelligence officer's murder, a car bombing that cost many lives in the heart of Eshtafiyye. And at the end of the day, whether it's political violence, or whether it's reform, whether it's March 14, whether it's October 17, all these good things rot and disappear in this giant gaping hole. And I think that is the status quo. What looks like a shiny surface, a thin shiny surface at the top, when things are slightly better. A very thin, superficial, shiny surface that's only there to cover a very deep, ugly hole. Hezbollah inherited this hole. It wasn't theirs always, but it's theirs today. The Syrians dug this hole, but they weren't the first. I mean, the Arab-Israeli conflict, decades back, was really the beginning of where this hole was first was first permanent. But then you fast forward so many years later and we don't have that thin surface any longer. All we have is an exposed, wide hole. And 10 years ago, a bit of that surface was cracked further. Three years ago, the surface finally shattered. I don't want that thin veneer to be polished once more by somebody who just looks reasonable, sounds reasonable, but does absolutely nothing to fill this hole. And that's where my hesitancy and my reluctance comes from simply naming names that are neither March 8 or March 14, the way many in October 17 describe, the, describe things. I worry that you can put 
somebody like Ziad Barud and Ba'abda. And that will be the thinnest, most superficial, shiny floor. But a very thin one for the whole. And you can put any technocrat, anyone in the Sarai. You can put Nawaf Slam, you can put one day perhaps Ahmed Bisat. You can put anybody in the Sarai in these terms. They're just going to be thin surfaces for the whole. Jamil Sayyid may take Birri's place. And when that happens, when Birri passes, Jamil Sayyid is somebody who will perhaps make that surface thicker and keep the whole intact. I don't think anyone should look away from this hole. And as long as we're throwing everything in there, maybe we should reconsider that. And the thing is, at the end of the day, there's no clear route to do so. Nobody wants conflict. Nobody wants divorce. But the status quo and all of us throwing ourselves into this deep, wide hole, it's untenable. I guess that's it. I will do more audio-only episodes down the road. And for anyone that listened to the last 25 minutes, thank you for letting me share a bit and reflect a bit on just a typical afternoon in Beirut. Thank you.